Behind the scenes, before the downbeat, there's a room backstage where magic starts to happen. The green room, the place where musicians spend those last few minutes before a concert, going over their music, warming up their fingers, changing their clothes, putting on their makeup. And then someone knocks on the door and calls, five minutes to curtain, five minutes please, and it's showtime. This is a look into the real lives of classical musicians, a show about the people behind the music. I'm Lara Downs. Welcome to The Green Room. With me this time in The Green Room, pianist Christopher O'Reilly and cellist Matt Heimovitz. I think, in a, in a way, we are in a golden period because we have this incredible perspective. And who knows what's, what's ahead in terms of people remixing and using other people's materials. I, I, you know, who, I, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable what's going to happen right now. Whatever is going to happen right now, and whatever has been happening in the last couple of decades in the classical music world, it's due in no small part to the groundbreaking efforts of Matt Heimovitz and Chris O'Reilly. They've both, in their ways, pioneered a new definition of the classical musician as a curious and courageous specimen, bridging genres with confidence and conviction, cultivating new audiences in unexpected places and unorthodox ways, transitioning easily between wildly diverse projects and mentoring the next generation of young musicians to keep up this good work. Playing everything from Bach and Beethoven to Radiohead and Jimi Hendrix, these two musicians, good friends and longtime colleagues, have taken the road less traveled, separately and together. Let's go back to the beginning, with Matt, who started out on a well-worn path, the classic route of the child prodigy. The cello was such an exotic instrument. I was so blown away and I, I, I was mystified by the sound. And my parents were delighted when I asked them if I could start to play when I was seven, seven, eight years old. They were very happy to get me off the streets. When I was, I think, nine, ten years old, as I was studying with Gabo Raito, he, he would spend the summers in Santa Barbara at the Music Academy of the West. Uh, I played on one of the master classes and unbeknownst to me, in the audience was Itzhak Perlman. And Itzhak, uh, Mr. Perlman at that time, invited me over after hearing me play. He, he began to take a, a strong interest and really began to mentor me at that time. That first introduction led to the next step, a move to New York City, a childhood mapped out. Mr. Perlman was the one that introduced me to the legendary cellist Leonard Rose, who encouraged my entire family to come with me to New York to study with him at Juilliard. These were father figures to Matt, who was an adorable kid, curly hair, infectious grin, and also a profoundly intuitive, natural-born musician. Together, these legendary musicians took him under their collective wing into a very special musical family. They both introduced me to different conductors, and that was the sort of traditional virtuoso career path at that time, was, you know, you, you auditioned for Zubin Mehta and Daniel Barnbaum. Well, I mean, Daniel Barnbaum, all this happened so naturally, because, you know, it wasn't like set up an audition for Daniel Barnbaum. It was, oh, it's... It's Passover. Uh, why don't you come over for some gefilte fish and maybe read through a Brahms sonata? That was my audition with Barnborn, was in the living room, just reading through some music, and, and Daniel then saying, I think you should come to London and play Saint-Saëns Concerto. They would just slip me into programs. You know, Zubin, Zubin would call and say, uh, I lost my soloist for the week, you know, on tour with the Israel Philharmonic. How's your Tchaikovsky or Coco? Are you ready? Chris had a somewhat quieter childhood in Evanston, Illinois, far from the musical legends of the Upper West Side. I started playing piano as the result of an ultimatum. My mother taught me how to read at a very early age, and so the nuns at St. Athanasius said, 
he knows how to read. We don't want bored troublemakers in our kindergarten, so you have to give him either French lessons or piano lessons. I took to it. Then, I mean, I was studying, but I wasn't practicing terribly hard, and, and my sister turned me on to the Beatles sort of in fourth, fifth, sixth grade after I realized that, you know, none of the girls were going to be that impressed with the Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 6, I thought I would give pop music a try. So I started a little rock band, and it had no effect on my social life whatsoever, but it was interesting music for me. That interest and ability in different kinds of music set Chris apart from the other classical music nerds. By the time he was in high school, he was making a living as a jazz pianist and doing a little better with girls. As soon as I got to the conservatory, I realized that my idea of jazz was based on the most contemporary performances of people like Keith Jarrett and McCoy Tyner and Chick Corea and folks like that. And so I didn't really have the background. So at that point, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. It was way too much work. And at that point, I'd done a fair amount of classical music and thought, well, in a way, it's really more challenging to recreate these pieces that are 100 years old than it is to give my evening's take on four choruses of Straight No Chaser. You know, if you have a, an off night in a jazz club, it's, it's nobody's, you know, nobody's problem. But I, I think the standards of classical music performance appealed to me. Chris went back to the practice room and started racking up the competition prizes, the Clyburn, the Buzzoni, the Leeds. He was one of a handful of powerhouse young American pianists on the concert circuit, tearing up stages with big-shouldered interpretations of Liszt and Scriabin and Gershwin, everything you'd expect from an ambitious young virtuoso. And then the unexpected happened again. In 2000, Chris was asked to host a new radio show called From the Top, a program that would feature the most talented young musicians in the country. The show cast Chris in a new role, kind of the cool uncle to hundreds of talented young kids. And in the process, it brought him back full circle to the music he'd discovered when he was a kid. We found that there was a place at the midpoint of the broadcast where stations would either play what we sent them or break away for local business. So that became my slot to do a solo piece. When I ran out of Chopin preludes and two-part inventions and things like that, I started playing these arrangements that I had done of music that I was passionate about at the time, you know, Radiohead, Nick Drake, Elliot Smith, what have you. I knew that we were on to something good when after our announcer would post-announce my piece, you know, that was our host, Christopher O'Reilly, playing Karma Police by Radiohead, we would get email into the program saying, who is this Mr. Head and where can I find more of his beautiful music? Meanwhile, Matt was about to go through kind of an adolescent rebellion of his own. He was still completely immersed in the rarefied world of the child prodigy superstar. At 17, he'd signed an exclusive recording contract with Deutsche Grammophon. He was soloing with 20 to 30 orchestras every season. It was a dream career. But then he went off to college. And like many sheltered college freshmen, he discovered that the world was a much bigger place than he'd realized. For a classical music nerd in recovery, it turned out that rock and roll was a game changer. I hadn't played a note of contemporary music or known that there is a genre outside of classical music before I was... 17, 18 years old, my first, my first year in college. Jimi Hendrix, John Coltrane, Janis Joplin, um, Miles Davis, you know, all this music. Was, this was brand new, and I, I just, I was so blown away. I was like, oh my God, where did this come from? And there was no turning back after that. When I heard Jimi Hendrix, Star Spangled Banner, right then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm playing this on the cello. In music as in life, it's often the random encounters, the accidental discoveries that lead you down your path. For both Matt and Chris, their musical passions were about to take them in very unexpected directions. 
One day, Chris played some of his Radiohead arrangements on another national radio show called Performance Today. That broadcast was instantly linked to about 150 rock-related websites literally around the world. It was all over the place. And it was at that point that Sony got in touch and said, you know, is this, is this repertoire you're interested in touring, recording? I said, yeah. Times were changing fast. The record industry was just starting the major transitions that would lead to the death of the record store, the streaming revolution, and the classical prodigy business just wasn't what it had been. Matt found himself at a crossroads. Two things happened simultaneously. One, the record label became very confused and didn't really know how to market me anymore because the idea of marketing a prodigy playing Dvorak Concerto is very different than a contemporary music specialist. They were having trouble. But at the same time, they were having trouble beyond me because the, the whole record industry was imploding. Towards the end of my contract, I, I, of course, was getting the feeling that this is not going to continue. I had just met my wife, Luna Pearl, who uh, is a composer. We thought, well, let's, let's just create our own record label and start doing what we really want to do, and we'll figure it out. Looking back, it's amazing to realize the power of that moment. Back then, no one had ever heard of such a thing. And Matt's the one who changed all of that. At that time, it, it was really new f- from the classical music world, from the indie rock and uh, singer-songwriter world. It was happening all over the place. Why can't we do that with a string quartet or solo, solo Bach, for that matter? I had just turned 30, and I had set this arbitrary deadline for myself of recording the six Bach suites by the time I'm 30. And then I made the recording, we started the label, we named the label, we, we had no distribution, we didn't know what we were doing. I went to my manager at the time and I said, you know, I really would like to play the Bach all over the place and support my album. And they laughed me out of the room. What do we do now that we have this recording and <laughs> we put some money into it and why don't we just call the Iron Horse Music Hall in town? And he had no idea what world I was in or what, what I was doing. And I said, look, I mean, I've, I've got a few students in town. We've got family. I mean, at the very least, we can guarantee that, you know, like 50 people are going to show up and it'll be all right. You'll, you'll do okay. Well, I guarantee I'll buy them all beers or whatever. The response from the community was unbelievable. It was electric. I knew instantly that night that there was a need for this in, in classical music. And then, just as he was getting the hang of this new experiment, something happened to convince him even more deeply that he'd made the right choice. As I was developing this idea, uh, 9-11 happened. And it, it, it took on, of course, a completely different tone and, and sense of urgency. And that's when I, on the one hand, I felt incredibly patriotic and grateful to this country for making our lives possible, making, making this idea that you can start your own record label, you know, the freedom of starting a business and the American dream, the whole thing. Okay, now I'm going to make my arrangement of Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner, you know, and, and I wanted to take it to all 50 states and... That was, that was the beginning of the, of the 50-state tour. The New York Times published a profile about Matt's road tours. Chris's Radiohead record was the first classical album to get four out of five stars in Rolling Stone magazine. So on the one hand, the paths they'd forged were leading them in exciting directions. But when you take the road less traveled, you have to be prepared for some bumps along the way. There are a lot of people in the classical music industry that think that what I'm doing is not to be taken seriously and actually to be reviled and to be, you know, avoided at all costs. I guess you could call it crossover, but gives respect to all of the music that we're performing, and people get it. The bottom line is you play what you believe in, and people will follow. And audiences have followed. The rewards of making all kinds of music for all kinds of audiences have, in the end, 
far outweighed the criticism of old-school diehards. It's a thrill to discover a way to give new life to an art form and a tradition that's hundreds of years old. It was only a matter of time before these two musicians would connect. Their first album together was called Shuffle, Play, Listen. In title and content, it's a direct acknowledgement of the way we listen to music now and the way we define the music we listen to. The album brings together everything from Stravinsky to Piazzolla Tango to Chris's own arrangements of pop tunes. Unapologetic eclecticism, the kind they both believe in heart and soul. So what comes next? After Radiohead and Jimi Hendrix, maybe you have to go all the way back to the original rock star, Ludwig van Beethoven. Their new record together is called Beethoven Period, and it's as unexpected as you'd expect from two bad boys of the classical music world. They play the Beethoven sonatas for cello and piano on period instruments of Beethoven's time. Chris on an original 1823 Broadwood fortepiano, and Matt on his 1710 Gefriller cello, outfitted for this occasion with oxgut strings. The sound they come up with is original, in the sense of being historically authentic, but also in the way that it strikes our 21st century ears as something completely new. Revelatory, the sense of balance, but also the, the incredible color available. It's changed some of our playing of other musics. It's certainly changed my whole idea of, of how Beethoven should sound. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're both you know, perpetual students and perpetual passionate advocates of, of whatever we find exciting. The paradigm shifts completely. I don't know, I find it more human, the, the, the sound of not only the, the forte piano, <laughs> that unicorn pedal, you know, true pianissimos, where you can just hear a pin drop, and also with the gut strings, this sort of very vocal and also flawed, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I actually love flaws in sound. I want some grit in there. I want to hear layers. I want it to be three-dimensional and the sound that you can smell and touch, you know. And, and so that, that's really important to me. And the gut strings just, uh, there's no getting around it. It's like taming a wild horse. I never know what, you know, where they're going to throw me next, and I, I just try to stay on. As you'd expect, they're taking this unexpected Beethoven to unexpected audiences. They've been playing to sold-out crowds and rave reviews in the major concert halls, but they're also out on the road again, bringing their 18th-century instruments into dive bars and brew pubs far off the beaten path. And you never know what will happen. We have our own heckler. I want Opus. I'm not leaving without Opus 69, 69. So we had to do Opus 69 as an encore. The rapt attention of this club audience, phenomenal. Maybe the most important change that Matt and Chris have made is the new standard they've set for the next generation. Chris is face-to-face with young musicians every week as a host of From the Top, and they all see him as a role model for the new reality in making music, in making a career, in making a life as a musician. We're no longer in a world where faster octaves are going to get you anywhere. You have to make your own stamp as a musical personality, and first and foremost, a viable personality in your community, playing all kinds of interesting music, 
and also making opportunities to perform, you know, hurricane relief concerts. There are always community outreach type of events. So they're not waiting for, you know, the LA Philharmonic to call them and say, you know, can you come play the, you know, the Beethoven Fourth Piano Concerto? They're out there with their friends playing music that they love and making themselves completely unique personalities and essential personalities. Let's go back to the beginning. We all remember the people who gave us our start in life, parents, teachers, mentors, the ones who showed us the way until we found our own paths. And if we're lucky, we get to circle back and lead the way for the ones who come after us. Matt and Chris are leading the way for a whole new generation who are following in their musical footsteps. Kids who take it for granted that they can play Bach and Beethoven and the Beatles and beatbox, as long as they play it with love and respect and conviction. And that's the future of music, period. So from all of us who are out there on the front lines making the world safe for classical music, whether we're at home in the studio or out on the road, packing or unpacking, doing our laundry, doing our hair, doing our taxes, it's just a day in the life and we'll do it again tomorrow. I'm Lara Downs at the piano. If you're in the audience at our next show, come backstage and see us in the green room. <laughs>